In this episode, we're going to talk about my upcoming adventure, which to some might sound like survival. While I talk about that, it's to not just share with you what I'm doing, but to answer a few questions I get asked a lot, some even recently, that I, I'm calling survival. They're not all survival-based, but it's to give you an idea. Most of these questions and, and ideas are people wanting my point of view, and so we're going to address that. And also, as a reminder, it's the 15th, so by the end of the day today, which is in about 15 hours my time, that contest is over for the Open Source Challenge. And it looks like nobody's doing it. Despite all the people that contacted me and want to do it, it looks like nobody's doing it. So I don't know. Maybe I just won't do challenges anymore. We'll see. I'll figure something out, something easy maybe, just to just to help PI Magazine to give their stuff away. So we'll see how that works out. But Gray Man Survival, I'm going to answer some questions and talk about things I'm doing from my point of view that might give you some new ideas and things to look at. That's what we're going to talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. We'll start off with the easy one, which is a common question. I think almost everybody gets asked, but what is the most important survival tool in your opinion? The most important survival tool to me isn't even a tool, although you could call it one, and that's knowledge. To me, without knowledge, I don't care how many tools and toys and gadgets you have. If you don't have the knowledge to use them, use them effectively, and use them in ways beyond which they're just designed for, you're going to be hurting. If you have the knowledge, then you can actually find things and scrounge for things and scavenge things and make them do things they're not supposed to do to replace the cool gadgets and toys you don't have that you may not have known how to have in the first place if you didn't have the knowledge. So I don't know if that sounded confusing, but knowledge. Knowledge is key. Now, to go into that, what am I doing? I am probably picking up my trailer next week. I say probably because some things still have to be worked out. The plan is I will be traveling across the country for up to a year, if it takes that long, where I'll be looking at properties in order to open a school. In addition to that, I'll just be enjoying my time. I'll be living out of an off-grid, essentially, travel trailer that is self-sufficient, self-contained. I'll be towing with my truck doing everything from unimproved camping out in the wilderness to the occasional paid campground site. Some of the places I go to, if I want to be there for a while or I want to, you know, travel around and do some touristy type stuff, I'll be staying at military bases that have RV parking because they're cheaper and I can do that. It's a lot safer, generally speaking. And I bring that up because I've been asked a lot. Obviously, people have mentioned things about survival or bugging out or different things. I'm kind of planning this around the concept. I'm planning it based on how I look at a military deployment when I plan for those beyond just myself, entire units, down to individual missions. I'm also looking at it following the bug out concept and different things I'm doing as far as route planning and locations. So to give you an example, I have two geographic hubs, meaning two geographic areas across the country that are essentially base of operations that are places I can go to long term if I need to in order to, in this case, you know, save on internet charges, hook up to power, get water, do it at a minimal or no cost, do laundry, maybe sleep in a indoor bed if I want a change of pace. One of them is in the Northwest and two of them are in the South close to each other. They're close to each other as far as the size of the country, but they're actually a few hundred miles separate. So it's two geographical hubs with a total of three locations that I'm basically operating out of is kind of the idea I look at when I look at plans like that. 
Now, I often get asked about traveling and traveling in ways in order to not get in trouble with firearms, for example. Some people outright ask me questions. They want to know how to sneak things through to break the law, and I'm not going to tell them how to do that because if anybody finds that information or they get in trouble, my name gets brought into it, that's a bad plan. So I'm going to tell you what I do, and this isn't about your opinion or rights, my opinion or rights. I'm just working within the existing system because I don't have time to deal with the bullshit, get arrested, go to court. So using California as an example, although it's not the only state, it is a state that I will be traveling through on occasion because I have reason to do so. doesn't matter what those reasons are. One of the things we know about California for those that understand firearms or firearms laws is very restrictive compared to other states. You know, for example, handguns can only have 10-round magazine capacity. I don't think I own guns that come in a 10-round magazine capacity, but I can get and have got 10-round magazines. Not to mention other firearm types and et cetera, et cetera, as far as gun laws go. Now, in addition to this, every state has different rules. Some have minimal rules for travel. Some have very restrictive rules for travel on where you store stuff and what has to be locked or out of sight or whatever. Then there's what do you have to tell police if you're stopped for, say, a traffic stop? Does that even matter if it depends on if you're carrying concealed weapons? So one of the things I've put together is a book of updated information on basic general laws I would need to know for different states according you know, where can my concealed permit, where can I still use it? What states have constitutional carry? And even if I'm going to go through there and they have constitutional carry, what locations can I not carry without a permit? Because a lot of people think constitutional carry means you don't have to have a permit anywhere. And that is actually not true in any state. Whether you agree with that or not, that's information I'd like to know. So I have all this information. So I know where and when I can use a permit or constitutional carry or how I have to store things and do whatever. So using California as an example is one of the locations, especially because it's near one of my hubs, is that I have storage locations somewhere north of California and somewhere southeast of California that are storage locations I can keep extra items. And what I do, for an example, something I've done for a long time, is I say I'm traveling from the north side south. I stop north of California at a storage location that I have. And in this location, I offload anything I shouldn't have with me going through California because I just don't want to deal with it. And I upload the things I can have. So, for example, I can, there's a specific firearm that I like to have handy, but it typically has 15 or 18 round magazines. I dump those 18s off and I get 10 round mags because I just don't care. Or there's weapons I don't carry in that state or even with me as legal as they are just so I don't have to deal with the hassle. But I have plenty of things with me that are well within the confines of their laws that I can use effectively if I needed to for, say, wild animals or something or whatever. And that's an example of something I do. And I have that capability at my other hub as well. One of these, of course, is located, the one in the northwest is obviously close to Canada, which is one place I can store things if I decide to travel to Canada in order to make sure I don't cross the border on either direction violating some international or country law. Not to mention these storage locations give me the opportunity to store other things, like if I need additional clothing or books or electronics, food supplies, whatever, that I can go to and reload, refill. Also closely located to them, I keep mail drop-off locations where I can get mail and I can order things. So I can be in Colorado And I can order something, say, on Amazon if I wanted to and pick which hub I want it to go to. Then I can travel there and get it at a later date because 
depending on the size of it and where it's going and which location and which hub, I can determine if I need to have somebody secure that item for me or if it's okay for it to sit there until I pick it up, which are things I already have in place. And I say all that because I've been asked things like that recently, and it's to understand that there's a lot more that goes into this than whether or not I have a ferro rod, a backpack full of goodies, and I pretend I can walk 50 miles to get to safety when 50 miles in most places in this country isn't going to be enough. Now, going off that subject, one of the things when I've done prepping shows is I often get asked questions about what's the best this, what's the best that. I don't blame people for asking that question. There are many situations where there is the best of something, but far too often people answer that question as this is the best when they definitely shouldn't because a lot of times it's about what's best for you. For example, a common question, and I've, I've been asked this myself, is going back to firearms, what's the best universal firearm that you can have? And I tell people there's no such thing. There is no universal firearm that's going to work in all situations. Not because we can dream up situations, we can just do simple ones. For example, if you want to go to Alaska and hunt coastal brown bear or grizzly bears, they're going to flat tell you. The smallest caliber they'll typically let you take, especially if you're going on a guided hunt, is going to be what's called a 375 H&H. It's on the smaller side of big game firearms as far as bullets go. However, comma, that's a big ass bullet in a big ass rifle. And it's not conducive, practical, realistic, feasible, or in a lot of times even operationally capable of defending you in your home if somebody invades your home. So, yeah, two extreme situations, but it's to point out there isn't really one. Think of it this way. A lot of times these questions are about items that we would call tools. So whether it's a knife, a camp stove, a gun, whatever. Think of them like tools. You can have a garage full of fancy tools, but if you don't know where to use them, when to use them, or how to use them effectively, it probably doesn't matter. It goes back to knowledge. That's why when people say, well, what's the best nine millimeter pistol or what's the, it doesn't matter which one fits, which one's comfortable, which ones are you training with? Are you actually going to train with it? Can you place those shots? It's no different than saying, well, you know, what's the best size metric wrench to have well nobody owns a metric wrench is typically one size it could be adjustable or they have socket sets with multiple sizes because you have in different uses for them and a lot of those guys know which ones work for standard and metric that are essentially the same which is a few of them but not all of them so during my little adventure the reason i'm telling people now is i'm hoping to be out of here before the end of the year it's entirely possible i could be out of here in six weeks it's also possible it could take me 16 weeks. There's some factors that have to play out first for me to verify this can happen. And then I go to a location from there for about a month because there's things I have to put in place. Like, for example, I have medical care. I'm a VA patient. I have to be able to do my appointments and receive medication. So I have to go to a location and process to a new facility, get a new doctor, restart up a new annual exam, get my prescription straight, get a destination they can be mailed to so that that's in place while I'm traveling so I can get my medications as needed and make sure I have a place to go to get any appointments I need. In addition to the stuff I can do while traveling if needed, but I have to have a main location. And more importantly, I have to have a destination I can receive my medications through the mail, which is why I have to go somewhere else and do it because I'm not doing it where I live now because I don't want to have any connection to this place anymore. Once I do that, it depends on the time of the year and where I'm going to go. Basically, I'll be avoiding 
heavily snow-laden, icy winter locations in the winter and paying more attention to the southern half of the country. And then when the summer kicks in and heat temperatures and humidity rises, I'll be up more on the northern side of the country. Not that I won't peruse either side on occasion, but I will generally be spending most of my time in the milder climate for the type of mirror that it is. Traveling around, meeting people. I've already got some training lined up and scheduled. So if you're out there and you got a group of people and you're interested in having some training, you definitely can contact me and we can see if we can work that out. Now, one of the things I get asked too a lot, and this is a common one too, is about water filtration. And I think that's important to have. And people ask questions about home-based style water filtration versus, you know, the portable ones that you can carry around. I think what people get stuck in sometimes is thinking that they're only going to have one. Now, you may be in a situation starting out or wherever where you only need to have one or you're going to have one type and maybe a backup for it. But there's ways and situations in which you have more. I'm traveling using a vehicle and a trailer. I will have multiple water filtrations. And I have a certain benefit to that with all the extras I have. So to give you an example, I have a bag I keep in my truck that has basic essentials if my vehicle breaks down or I'm stuck and I need to walk a ways to get help. And which it inside of it, I do keep a small water filtration setup. I do have a live straw in there and I do have a Sawyer Mini in there with the little baggie so that I can get water. Plus it already comes preloaded with a um, 100 ounces of clean water. So I do have that, right? That's just that bag. I'll carry with me my bag, you might call a bug out bag, but it's a full hiking pack of things I could actually take and live out of if I needed to, if I wanted to just go, you know, backpack camping. Inside that, it also has a, a Sawyer. One of the bags has a Sawyer, but the other one has a slightly larger catadine filter that can filter out quite a bit more water than this, or about the same amount, I think, as the Sawyer's. But there are a little better filters, but they're also more expensive. So that just happens to be what's in those bags. Because I'm living out of that trailer and I'm planning to be off-grid a lot, I have a couple other advantages. One, due to space, I'm taking a Berkey water filter system. If you haven't looked into them, look up Berkey. They use activated charcoal systems. The charcoal filters, I think, are good for about 6,000 gallons. The smallest stainless steel one is the one I'm taking. I think it's about a gallon and a half water, roughly. And I keep a small notebook with tear-proof weather tube pipe paper with it and a sharpie marker so that every time i fill it up i just mark off one and then i do it by month to see how often i'm using it and then of course i can calculate how many gallons of water i've used easily so i can be tracking the lifespan of those filters not to mention that i have two filters in there when i only need one but it'll hold two so it basically takes if it's 6,000, it's correct because I have two filters. It means overall I can do 12,000. And they explain all that on the website. So I'll have that. And the advantage to that is places I'm camping, if there's, say, a stream or a river or a lake and the water's relatively clean, I can pour, I can pour any of it straight in there. But another thing I carry with me is either I carry a bucket. I have a hard bucket as well as a collapsible bucket, mostly for moving things like water or earth if I need to. And I carry cheesecloth because it's a great filtration thing and just easy to use so that I could say, take some water, pour it through the cheesecloth in a bucket just to get the big obvious stuff out in which I can pour straight into that Berkey and then have clean sanitary water to drink. Fun fact though, on top of that, one of the things my trailer has is an intake hose that's quite lengthy that I can put into a water source like a river stream or lake. And it holds, a, I think 130 liters or 150 liters. 
and it will cycle that through and refill my water takes. And it also has its own filtration system. I can drink that water just fine, but I can also treat it as non-potable, meaning I can shower with it and, you know, wash hands and wash dishes. If I want to do that, I can treat it that way. I can also, if I'm concerned about it, rerun it through the Berkey system. But the reason I use all these different ones is one, the way I'm traveling, but I'm also trying to minimize the impact on each filtration system. So since I have the Berkey, I'm primarily using that for drinking water. I'm trying to use what's uploaded in the trailer, not for drinking if I don't need it, only to have more water, make it last longer, and not be running through that filtration system because I have so much time I can use those Berkeys for. The point is to say, depending on what you're planning for and how you're doing it, you don't have to have just one thing. So if you buy, say, a Sawyer Mini, which is a good little water filter, and you throw it in this bag, and you have a bag built for, say, a survival situation, or you're just doing it because you like to go hiking and camping, that's definitely effective and going to get you a lot of water. However, comma, if you add on to that the idea that you have a van or a travel trailer or a truck, a car, whatever it is, whether it's for a survival plan or a camping trip, you can also add to that package, which is now a vehicle, an additional source of filtration just to have a backup. And if it's got the space, maybe you want to add a bigger one. So it just depends on what you're doing. Like the gallon and a half a day, what's nice about it is I track the gallon and a half water a day, assuming all I'm drinking is water, in my Berkey system, based on the amount of water me and my dog consume, it produces exactly the amount of water I would need to survive and thrive and be fine every day. And I can use more of it if I need to, because, you know, basic survival principles, you need a gallon of water per person per day for hygiene, cooking and drinking. And that's a bare minimum. And since I already have plenty of water for hygiene and cooking, that's essentially just drinking water. So it gives me and my dog plenty of water and I can track it very easily. So those are things to consider for any tools or toys that you have. Just because you have it in a bag doesn't mean you can't have something bigger or something extra in, say, a vehicle or an RV just so that you have more of it if the space is there and it's more convenient and makes life more comfortable. Another question I've been asked is about any survival training I've done or any types of training like that, whether it was bugging out, survival, escape and evasion, et cetera, et cetera. How much stuff do you hope for, plan for on carrying there's a basic principle in a couple of places that say essentially the things and items you would need based on that situation or just ones you carry on you in general should fit inside a Ziploc bag, a standard, uh, the bigger one that's more like a gallon, which would be more of luxury. You could make it happen with the sandwich sized one, but the standard old school one that I think they say is a gallon or close to a gallon, obviously you can make those big and bulky, but it's about putting the things in there. And the idea behind that is it's telling you the total amount of space, not that you're carrying a Ziploc bag. Those things are usually put in different pockets on your clothing in different locations. And being able to have those things and survive with them based on the elements and your knowledge. If you were to practice this, for example, which I think more and more people are doing it now because they've heard of it. They don't know it comes from like certain places is there's things they don't realize. So for example, you want to go do a survival challenge and you have skills and knowledge to do so. I've seen ones where guys have taken out, and these are just regular dudes. They weren't like instructors or anything, so nothing against them. They were taking their Ziploc bag, 
But if you look at what they're wearing, what they have on them, they're actually violating the principle. For example, a couple of guys had a Ziploc bag full of a bunch of cool stuff they were going to use and try to survive and stay warm and all this stuff for, say, three or four days or two days. But on their belts, on their hips, they had a Leatherman or, you know, a hunting knife or survival knife. That's that's a no-go. And that practice of that situation, they can do whatever they want, but in the situation I'm describing where you receive that training, if you were to take a knife, it would need to fit in that bag and would be included in your space. And you're only typically, if you really do it correctly, only wearing simple, basic clothing items. You're not wearing too much. They may not train like that anymore because it's dangerous, but originally it was some real simple, basic clothing and not really enough to keep you the way you need it to be, depending on the environment you're in, because you could be put in environments where you could scrounge and find things, or you could be put out in the wilderness. Again, this goes back to knowledge. The more you know, the less you need. The less you know, the more you need. The more you know, the more you need, the more you have to carry, and the more you need to be in shape. Which goes into another question about if I was to say the top three things you need, number one is knowledge. Number two is fitness, physical fitness. You're not always going to have that truck and trailer situation. Depends on how much you're doing and how well you can do A, B, or C. I see people on the internet all the time trashing somebody that does a, a YouTube video and you see a man or a woman on there and they're not as pretty, we'll say, as other people. They don't appear to be as in a physical shape. They don't have the specimen of a body. They don't have the defined muscles. They might even look a little thick and chunky. But in their video, they're wearing packs that are at least 30 or 40 pounds, if not more, and they're out hiking pretty difficult terrain in some situations for several miles. And then the people commenting, I'm like, regardless of how they look and what you think that means, can you grab that pack and in that weather, in that situation with the clothing they're wearing, are you easily going to walk that 20-mile round trip thing in a day and have a good time doing it? You know, everybody's going to say they can because it's the internet, but physical fitness starting with things like your cardio, your ability to do mild to moderate activity over the long term is the first thing really to look at. Doesn't mean you have to do cardio exercises to get there, but you need to do what we call functional exercises. What I'm saying is there's a lot of ways to work out. There's a lot of, should I do it this way? Should I do it this way? There's things about body type, nutrition. All these things are important. They're very important. What I'm saying to you in the survival aspect is that Functional training, training that makes you stronger and more resilient to capable of do things you may need to do are far more beneficial than things that tend to make you look pretty. Not saying you can't look pretty and do things, but there's a lot of people that look pretty that can't do things other people can do. There's a lot of famous people. A lot of them look real pretty with pretty muscles that go out and do survival shows or meet military guys and go through some of their training and it kicks their ass. And even though they're in decent shape and look pretty good, Seeing them train, like I've seen guys train with, like, say, SEALs, coming from the military and working with SOCOM, realizing they're doing this thing for the benefit of this person, that's a good thing. But it's a lot of it is not the same as what the SEALs would do. is nowhere near intense. Not to mention they're doing this all the time. This famous person is coming in for a few hours, and they are smoked. What that tells me is, sure, they're in shape. Sure, they look pretty. But they don't have the functional ability through training to keep up with these individuals, not to mention the mental resilience. So that's why I say, like, if you had to choose, let's say, you had to choose a cardio-based lower body type exercise, and you wanted to place it around the functional idea of what you believe you'd have to do, 
you'd have to ask yourself, do I want to run on a treadmill? Do I want to run a bike in a gym? Do I want to run a bike on the street? Do I want to go walking? Do I want to go hiking? Do I want to go running? Do I want to go swimming? And let's say you could only pick one. Well, which one do you think is something you're probably going to do? If you think you're going to have to walk and carry weight, that's probably the functional type exercise you should do. And you should combine exercises to make you better at that, like say certain types of squat with weight resistance because you're going to have to get up and get down and exercises that replicate the functional movie and moving that big pack. Those are the types of things I'm saying. So if you're new to working out or you're changing your working out and you're thinking survival, think about just like I need to have this thing because I need to be able to do X, Y, and Z in this situation, whether camping or survival, think about your fitness the same way. It's great to look pretty and you really can if you want to, but it's better to be able to do things. You know, I'm sure it's great for a lot of people to be big muscle bound dudes and I have nothing against guys that do that. And they can lift a lot of weight and they can do a lot of things. And with the right muscular strength and endurance training, there's a lot of cardio-based stuff you can do over the long term if you've never done it much before. I knew guys in the military that were big barrel-chested freedom fighters that hated running, worked out on their own, and almost never ran. But they never had a problem running on a PT test because they were pretty healthy, they were in pretty good shape, and because of the exercises they did, they were able to do that. It took them a long time to get there. But they've also had a lot of training on the military side that was functionally based. You take the same person in the civilian world that doesn't have that functional stuff but has the gym time. And then you tell them, hey, we got to walk 15 miles today carrying 60 pounds. They can probably do it. They probably can. But if they had to do that for 10 days and they hadn't prepared for it, they may not be as lucky as a guy who doesn't look as pretty who's done it before. So that's why I say, looking at fitness, look at the functional stuff you're probably going to have to do or you believe you're going to have to do and base your exercises around that. Another question I get often asked is my opinion on knives and different types of knives. And there's lots of knives out there and lots of tools out there. And some cost a lot of money and some are real cheap. People make videos and they talk about why this is cool, why that's cool, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them are endorsed. Some of them get free stuff. Some of them just buy the things they own. Who do you trust? Who do you know what to do? This does come back again to knowledge and learning things about tools and whatever. A lot of knives that are very expensive are expensive for two reasons, usually one or both. If it's one, it is typically because the way they're made, how they're made, how much craftsmanship goes into them, if they have fancy wood handles and all the work they do to them. The second thing being the person who makes them that's well known, the type of steel they use, how they prepare it, make the knife, the testing it's gone through comes out that they survive and last a lot better than that $30, say buck knife you buy at Walmart. Not saying those knives are bad, I'm just saying they're nowhere near as good as these knives that might cost a few hundred dollars. The question is, what do you really need and what do you know about them? So it's like anything. If you're getting into this or you're just getting into it, you want to learn how to use knives correctly. You want to learn how to care for them, how to sharpen them, how to maintain them, what size knife you need for what activity to make sure it works for you. It's great when some guy goes on and makes a YouTube video about all the cheap stuff he can use and why it's great. All he's really telling you is it's great for him. You don't really know how much experience he has. If you don't really even know much about it, then you don't know if he really knows what he's talking about or not. And a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times all these guys are really telling you is the reason it's awesome is because they can't afford anything else. And you usually get those hints like, this is just as good as a $600 knife. Probably not the case. Or, well, I just don't like that really expensive product. It's like, no, what you're saying is you can't afford it. That's a big difference than explaining to you why things work a certain way they do. So that being said, 
what are your priorities and where's your money? What money can you do, you know, A, B, and C? Or do you have to buy it all now? Because if you don't, your budget can be spread out longer based on income. So it's figuring out. And the thing is too, it's like, I've talked about like guns before in this matter, you know, you can buy $600 AR-15s and you can buy $4,000 AR-15s. The thing is most of the more expensive ones, yes, they are made better. They're built better. They have better parts and components, but they're designed around the idea of people that are putting them through the paces, probably going to use them for tens of thousands around. Probably they were trying to sell them to the military at some point, expecting them to get dirty, expecting them to get thrown around, expecting them to get jumped out of airplanes. That is completely different than a recreational shooter that likes to shoot targets that may or may not think they might have to use it one day in a self-defense situation. Not saying that second guy can't have a $4,000 AR. If he can buy it, by all means. But the question is, how much work are you going to put this tool through? Because if you're going to put it through tools, through a lot of work, you need better tools that are made to last. It's like, I think, again, not a cargo, but I think Snap-on is one of the better tool products out there. And a lot of guys don't care, don't like them, but it's because of their price. They're very, very expensive compared to going to Sears or going to whatever that little store is that has knockoffs of everything. The thing is, if you're a professional mechanic or working in a race car pit and you're using tools all the time and all the tools all the time for several hours a day and it's going to be happening for years, yes, making the investment to buy that better product is probably better for you because that cheaper stuff probably won't last. It's probably known it won't last. But that doesn't mean you need that set of snap-on tools if the only thing you do that you use tool for is maybe change a battery and change your oil every once in a while. You can have them all you want. The question is, do your requirements necessitate a higher-end product when money's an issue? So you figure out what items are you going to put through the paces? What items are going to require more use? What items are going to get more abused? What items are more susceptible to weather, et cetera, et cetera. So going back to survival equipment, because I get asked this all the time, let's say we're looking at the simple concept of I have a backpack bag, I got everything I need in there, and I'm going to go camp and hike the Pacific Crest Trail, or I'm going to use it for a bug out bag or whatever. I have to live out of that thing. Okay, what things are you touching and using all the time? Well, the bag Number one, so the bags probably needs to be a better bag. If you got a tent or a tarp in there, you're probably using it every day or maybe weekly if you're moving some. So that probably needs to be better. You know, so you're looking at stuff like that. Your boots, you're walking all the time. Boots and socks probably need to be better. You know, let's say you got the space and you're carrying six T-shirts for some reason and you're rotating them regularly. Yeah, it's great if you can afford better ones that are going to last longer. But if you can't, maybe that's something you can scale down the price on a little bit. It just depends on the items. You know, go back to the knife situation. Well, you like to carry a multi-tool. You do have a knife and you do have a hatchet. And it just turns out the way it works for you is you use the hatchet a lot. Use the multi-tool a lot. You don't use the knife a lot. Well, then maybe you don't need that $600 knife. So figure out which items you're going to be using the most. Do that by actually using them and practicing them. Figuring out how much they're going to be in the weather, how much abuse they're going to get, how much care they require, and then you can prioritize which types of things you probably need higher end quality, more durable items versus the ones that for you, you don't necessarily require that kind of expenditure. That being said, to completely answer the question on my trip, I have um, four types of knives, essentially. So I have, well, I have multi-tool. I have a multi-tool that's always in my truck. And I have another multi-tool that'll be in my trailer just in case I need them. 
Um, I have two types of knives you could call survival knives or whatever that are Topps brand knives that I like and that I use. One of my Topps knives has a simple cheap more knife on the side. The cheaper ones are like 15 bucks. It's just a utility knife. It's simply there because I spent the money on the other knives. I only needed something simple I'm going to use every once in a while. And all that knife's really going to be used for is gut and fish or in the event when I'm cooking, my other knives are dirty. I have another Mora knife that is part of my kitchen knives, plus like a regular, just a cheap serrated knife for meat. And then I have a knife, one of those Almazon knives, I think, or some other brand like that that's a cleaver-type utility knife I can use for everything, just so that I have less objects of them, less of those objects because they weigh more. So even though I have multiple options, they're when I have multiple options, they're split between what I carry, what's in the truck, and what's in the trailer. So that if I have to lose, you know, one of those items, I still have a backup. If I lose both of those and it's just me, I still have some. One of the questions I often get asked, too, is from my point of view, whether the questions about camping or hiking or bugging out are things I think about or prepare for or take with me that other people typically don't. And I guess I don't know what other people typically do. I only know what people say they do or what they have on a YouTube video. But I look heavily at a couple of areas. One of them is signaling, my ability to signal and communicate, whether it's covertly or overtly in order to get help or to pass a message. So one of the things I carry is a VS-17 panel or pieces of one, which is that reflective orange material that the military has, and you can get the full size, even the big panels to land helicopters, usually only 40, 50 bucks, and the small ones are usually about 20. You can buy them on eBay, Amazon, all over the place. But I like those. Because it's a really bright hunter orange, fluorescent orange, it's easy to see. And if you had to, you could cut strips off and leave strips for a trail. And they come with some, you know, the big ones come with tie downs. You can stake to the ground. They use for signaling aircraft or landing aircraft. So I, I do keep those. I have a full-size one I keep in my truck. And then I have strips of them that I keep in my packs. Going on to signaling, people have things like signal mirrors. Those are great. I have them too. I also look at other things as form of signalings as like certain communication devices like radios and make sure they have signaling features on them as well. Other things I use are chem lights and I also buy uh, IR chem lights for night vision, knowing that some people have that. But what I do is I always buy the good chem lights one, cause I don't remember what brand they are, but they're also on one end of them. They have kind of a little, looks like a hole punch through a tab so that you can tie them down. One of the things I do, I did in the military is I tie about four feet of 550 cord to that. Reason being is you can break that chem light, you can hold the end of the 550 cord and you can twirl it around like a kid would do with a sparkler, but it's much bigger. And it creates a big halo of color that makes it easier to be seen from a distance. We used to use that to signal helicopters. We mostly did it with IR, but even with regular chem lights, it works. Additionally, I make sure I have chem lights of varying time lengths, you know, the 30 minute ones as well as the 10 hour ones, and I make sure they're good and strong so that I can use ones for 30 minutes if I need light, but the 10-hour ones last. And the thing is, even though the 10-hour ones are only super bright for about 10 or so hours, you can find often that the next day or the next night, 24 hours later, they still have a faint glow. It's very faint, but if you were, say, lost and you were marking a trail with a few chem lights, uh, one, if you're marking a trail with a chem light, they can find it during the day, and secondly, at night, if they're close enough, they don't have to be right on it, but they definitely can't be like 50 feet away they may see that faint glow of light and then they can go over there and identify it and say hey we found a chem light 
Other signaling things I carry are different types of flares and smoke. You can buy, I think, even still smoke that's similar to like not really a smoke grenade. I mean, you can make cheap smoke grenades, but they don't last that long. They don't billow as well. Real smoke grenades cost a lot of money, but you can buy smoke signaling things that are typically like, I don't know. I don't think they're much bigger than a dry erase marker that you can actually hold in your hand. You usually can find them at places like marine stores because they use them on the water, but you can use them yourself where you're able to hold them and set them off and they send smoke out. And you can use those, especially if you're trying to signal somebody for help because they'll burn for a little while. And even if you're in a forested area, you could tie it off to a stick or a pole and raise it in the air if you needed to. But those are great, especially if aircraft's flying over because you can, uh, even though it'll spread out and dissipate, it'll give an initial billowy signal so that they can see that smoke. And if they can hone in on that area and then you're twirling a chem light, uh, if it's getting darker, or let's say you had the VF-17 panel out and then they can find you easier. So you got to think of the same way there. Like, what do you need the signaling items for? And don't stick to just one. Try to have two. I look at it like this. I'm trying to get their attention with one item and at least get them into the neighborhood so that I can definitely pin them down with the second item as a backup to make sure I get that signal out there. So that being said, while I'm traveling, the plan's already in place and stuff for me to continue to do the podcast while I'm traveling. I'll just be doing it in a trailer or doing it out front by a campfire. The only thing I haven't locked down yet, because I can't until I get the trailer and checking it out at night, is which light source or additional light source I'll use to have good lighting. Because I'll have internet and I'll be able to do live video, mainly so I can talk to people that I need to, but also possibility of doing live shows. I'm just considering that. Whether or not I'll be able to do it, but the podcast will continue no matter what, because I'll have internet. And just so people know, the reason I'm doing this is before I got my dog, but after I got out of the military, I was going to take a trip. I was actually going to do it on my motorcycle, a road trip for up to a year that I had planned, the routes and everything planned out, and I'd got re-injured, and then that just never was able to happen. So I'm doing it this way now. But what I am mainly doing, the main purpose is to take time in order to find a location and either buy a property with a house on it or buy a property I can put a house on. Like I've found a couple places that are significant size to be workable from and the train works for the training center we want to have but it has no structures on it so if i have a trailer like this then that's fine because the right piece of land that is ideal for a very simple entry level to very advanced and difficult land navigation course if i showed up on a property and there was nothing else would be the first thing i would build and would be easy to do so there are plans in place for that, and that's the main purpose, but I'll take advantage of the time to go see some old friends, visit people, travel around, provide some training and classes, and it should be should be a great time. But the end goal is most likely in living and ending up somewhere in the northern Rockies towards the Pacific Northwest is the most likely scenario just due to weather. We'd rather do winter training with people that want to do winter training and survival other than do swamp, high humidity type levels of training, looking at the more extreme temperatures and locations. The option was winter training is much preferable and probably more needed than these other types are. And so that's why we're picking those areas. Dakotas and areas like that look okay. We don't want to go much farther east, but in those areas, having wide open flat terrain is not conducive to all the other aspects of what we want to do. 
So we do need some trees. We do need some sort of water feature close by, if not directly on the property and elevation changes and hills. And these all factor into many different things that we're doing. So that's why our main focus is Northern Rockies to the Pacific Northwest. And this is interesting. This will be the last question I answer, but it, I got asked this again in recently. I didn't expect to get asked this, but it's something I had to learn on my own. But it had to do with things like cookware and little camp stoves, not like your big propane ones, but like your little multi-fuel ones or tiny ones. And the, the pots, the pans, and the materials are made out of them, which ones are better. So primarily we get these in stainless steel, titanium, and aluminum. Some aluminum are anodized aluminum, like some of the cookware. So here's the things that I learned, and I'll tell you what I picked for which reasons and why. So stainless steel, what's great about stainless steel is lightweight. Not the lightest, but it's pretty close. Stainless steel heats up quicker. So that's really great when you need to conserve your fuel, especially when you're using a fuel source that's not natural. It'll heat up whatever you're cooking or water much quicker. Now, it won't hold the heat as long either. It's still hold it plenty of time, but there is an advantage to that. For example, some people like to use the stainless steel cups and not insulated ones when they're camping, which is fine. But in cold weather, what's great about that is if you, you know, you of course want to be wearing gloves, but you pour in your hot tea, your hot cocoa, your hot coffee, because the heat doesn't stay in there as long. Of course, you don't want as big of a cup if you don't drink it, you know, if you drink it really slow, but that heat will dissipate out in your hands. So it kind of depends on your point of view. It's more fragile than the other ones. Now it's not paper mache. I'm not saying that, but it doesn't have the strength and durability as the other ones. As long as you're aware of that, you shouldn't really run into a problem. But if you have you know, say a stainless steel standard uh, percolating coffee pot and you don't have the lid on it that provides a little more rigidity and you don't have something inside of it. And then let's say you put it in a soft bag or a soft case and drop it on the ground, you're probably going to deform it. Not that it can't be somewhat fixed, but it's to understand as long as you're aware that it's not as strong as the other ones and you're fine. It's also fairly cheap. The next one is titanium. Titanium is the lightest of all of them. They're also probably the strongest of all of them. And they're also the most expensive of all of them. It heats up rather quickly like stainless steel, not quite as quick, but much quicker typically than like anodized aluminum. But they do cost a lot more. So it really depends on what you need it for. Then when you have aluminum, there's not too many things that are mainly aluminum. Most are anodized aluminum. Things that are straight aluminum are like the Kelly Kettle that I have. I bought the aluminum one only because I bought the largest one. And it was so that the aluminum holds the heat a lot longer than stainless does. And so it, it's so that because I was using the large one, I didn't want stainless steel. I needed that water staying hotter longer. But anodized aluminum is the heaviest. It's very strong. It's thicker than titanium. So it, it outdoes titanium in strength in certain areas. For example, Titanium, generally speaking, is going to be way stronger than the anodized aluminum. But let's say for whatever reason you needed to dig a hole, you didn't have a shovel, and you've got a titanium pot and anodized aluminum. They're both strong, but you're probably going to deform the titanium one when you start digging just due to leverage. It's a lot thinner. It's more likely for it to bend and get out of shape, whereas the anodized aluminum one, which is heavier, is going to be much thicker probably won't. Odds are you're not going to do that, but it's just so you understand it's thicker, heavier, sturdier, but pound for pound is not as strong as titanium. It does hold the heat well, but it takes the longest to heat up. 
So it just depends on what you're doing. So to give you an example, my cookware, because I, when I'm using like camping, car camping, tent camping, or with a trailer, I have a frying pan of cast iron. That's a good one that I use. And I typically have one somewhat smaller pot that's anodized aluminum. And then in the trailer, I also will have, it's a two or three quart stainless steel pot that is a, it's a billy pot. And it was mainly the main reason I got those size I did, which I think I'm going to end up selling it and getting a smaller size was for water and large amounts of water. But now that I have, aside from all the water filtration and water storage, I have the uh, Kelly kettle, which is more efficient for heating. I'm not going to need the billy pot. And then for the small stoves, I the one I have, I believe, is titanium, not anodized aluminum, but it's a small stove that cooks one fuel tab, I think, does two cups of water. By the time one fuel tab is burned out, it does two cups of water. It's either a thinner anodized aluminum or titanium, but I think it's titanium. But I'm not I'm not sure on that. I'd have to look it up. But anyway, it's it's determining what you need it for. Like I don't use metal anything for a drinking cup. I have a travel mug that I had for 20 years and went with me around the world until the thing finally broke apart enough. I decided to get another one, and then I found found them for like eight bucks. So I got another one. I'll probably have that for years. That's mainly what I drink out of. I do carry usually one regular coffee, one or two regular coffee style mugs with me in case there's people with me. But I, I don't, I use them for that. I don't use like um, plates and forks and stuff made of titanium. I don't do that. I have some pretty strong, rigid plastic style camping plates just for lightweight that I use. And then I also travel and use paper plates and those kinds of things. So basically it comes down to the cookware and it's really the size you need. And then again, how much abuse you're putting it through. And by abuse, I mean, are you cooking on a camp stove? Looking at full-size stuff, for example. You're cooking on an open flave camp stove, or are you cooking open pit on a fire? Because that's a lot of heat difference. and makes a huge difference in what you're doing. Do understand that when you're using things like stainless steel, especially, and you're putting them on an open pit fire, like guys doing videos, and they're setting it in the coals, realize that it's going to get burnt on the outside. It's going to get the black color. You can get most of it off with a lot of work, but just realize it's not going to look pretty forever. But it's just figuring out what kind of stuff you're going to cook. What would you really need? Like if you know, do you know if you need a frying pan and or a pot? And then you look at the sizes based on the food, how many people are, and what you're cooking on, what your fuel source is. Is it, you know, synthetic block fuel? Is it some sort of propane or white gas fuel? Is it open flame fire? You know, those are the types of things you need to know in order to figure out what you need. Generally speaking, if you're looking at something to put in your backpack, the reason I, I think it's an SBIT product, but I'm not sure. It's a small stove that'll hold two cups of water. It sits on a little stand that has a little indent square for its fuel tabs, but I can also put in things like sticks and stuff. So I don't just have to have the fuel tabs, even though the fuel tabs are cheap. To contain it all, the pot itself with two cups will hold the stand inside and has a lid that goes on it, but I can also put in there several of those fuel tabs. I think something like 20 of them, 20 or 25, and then it holds in a little mesh bag and they're like 30 bucks. It's small, it's lightweight, it's strong enough. Two cups of water is great, especially if you have like meals like Mountain House that don't have to be those that have 
one or two cup water requirements. The measurements are on the side of the cup and they work really great. That's the little one that I use. I don't really use any. I like self-contained systems. I don't like too many of the other ones, although there's other great ones out there. That's just the one that I tried that I like the most and I kept. And then like my trailer has a Dometic stove, uh, propane. I believe it's a Dometic stove. And it's um, two burner and that works great. But part of my trailer is a pop-up that's completely large vented windows with lots of airflow. So the way it's designed is there's no indoor cooking feature. But I have a small um, one burner type stove that people get for like a camp stove that's not much bigger than the burner. I can connect a small propane can to and I could safely cook on the table in there for short durations because it vents so well. So just look at, uh, you know, what you're using, what you're needing it for, how you're going to be cooking, how many people. I try to go as minimal as possible, especially with heavier objects. I'm trying to keep the weight down so that I can, um, you know, overall get better gas mileage. And I'm also trying to minimize the amounts of things I have to make space for other things I may want. And it's going to be kind of a long-term plan to see how it works out. And having that trailer that I'll have for the rest of my life, it's important that I, I do this and getting to do it for so long, I'll definitely learn some things, which I'll probably share with you. So a little longer episode than normal, but I hope this helps you out answer some of those survival questions and from my point of view tell you a little bit about what i'm doing in my trailer once i have my trailer i'll definitely when i know for sure i got it i'll tell you exactly what it is maybe send you some pictures and put them up on here i'll do a youtube video i'll do something if you like this episode don't forgive us a like share heart whatever your platform is using and make sure you let people know you think will enjoy this material give us a review on apple podcast or wherever you're at and don't forget to check out the show notes and check out dmrpublications.com And we will be back again shortly with more information right here on Grayman, Hiding in Plain Sight.